I am a human being and I killed human beings. Before I knew it, I'd fired four shots at the door. I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion, Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. In South Africa, 71 people are murdered every day. These are the stories of Africa's killers and criminals and what it takes to catch them. My name is Paul Llewellyn, I'm a journalist and true crime filmmaker, and my co-host as always to discuss crime on the continent is Jared Labaskachny, the former cop and current head of LNS Threat Management, who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases, and he is our profiler. Please visit our YouTube page and subscribe. Search Profiler Africa. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. Simply search Profiler. Please share your favorite link. Um, you can engage with us on our social media pages. Our Twitter and Instagram handle is at Profiler Africa. Please also join the group on Facebook. Um, we welcome any questions or suggestions. Uh, and you can email us on ProfilerAfricaInfo at gmail.com. Uh, we do post stuff on there related to the crime, so get along and check it out. So we were having a discussion, Gerard, about whether... Me and Gerard were chatting about whether we should leave the door open mm. or closed, which is our big dilemma today. Um, yeah. Where, where does the evidence lead us? The evidence leads us to one place where we have the option of doing slightly quieter, rainy background or a bit more of a true crime podcast slash relaxation meditation experience i i think the 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 rainy background is a fantastic background it's uh i mean this is africa for those of you that are listening from overseas uh specifically up where we are in johannesburg you get these amazing summer storms um and it's it'll probably stop and the sun will be out in 10 minutes but it really is just a. It's, you know, when Toto sang a song, The Rain's Down in Africa, I think this is what they're talking about. So I think it sets the mood, sets the tone. Um, and we're talking beautiful. crime, so a little bit ominous, a little bit yeah, moody, a little sure. bit, but atmosphere is a good vibe. I agree. Okay, so we're going to, that's the, that's the decision made then. So yeah. let's move on to the next thing. The next thing I wanted to know is, now, Jared's let the team down a bit this week because <laughs> he hasn't got any awards to report back on or anything like that. I mean, you've had a bit of a slack week, to be honest. Sorry about that. Hey. <laughs> anyway, maybe next week. <laughs> I was curious, Gerard, before we get into this week's topic, what do you do to unwind? Like, what's fun for Gerard? Hmm. I know uh, you like, I know you have, I know you enjoy kind of your um, pistol sports. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what Gerard does to unwind. So uh, I would say there's three key issues. Um, I walk the dog. I like that. So twice a day, I take my dog for a walk about one kilometer, one and a half kilometers at a time. Um, she's great, great fun to hang around with. Uh, that's definitely one thing. Uh, then I swim, if I can, four to five times a week, about one and a half kilometers, two kilometers if I'm really pushing it. Okay. If my shoulder's not giving me trouble. Um, what's the third thing? Like you said, I do, I do sports shooting. Yeah, pistol, rifle, shotgun. And that's quite fun and challenging and really good. It's like golf. It's not really the physical side, but you really got to focus and pay attention. 
So I don't hunt. A lot of people, when you, when, you, when you say that you do shooting or that you're interested in firearms, they automatically assume that you like to go and kill things in the forest. So I don't hunt at all. I personally don't like hunting. I know there's a lot of people out there that do, and I respect that. And it's a huge industry in South Africa mm. uh, and other parts of the world. Um, but for me, it's about you know, what in the old days you would call combat shooting, but now they call it practical shooting. So you run around moving, shooting targets that move, some of the little static, changing magazines. And like I said, you can do that with a handgun, rifle, shotgun, and sometimes you do three-gun where you do all three of those in a particular state. So I enjoy that. It's challenging and, yeah, and always good. If you own a firearm, I think you should be practicing regularly with it. It's a responsible thing to do. Um, a little word to the wise. Check out Zulu Alpha on YouTube, guys. Okay, check it out. So Zulu Alpha Firearms Channel. Jura, Zulu Alpha. Well, you know, they could just... I don't know. Are there other Zulu Alphas that would I think come that, up? There is okay, actually. so fine. Zulu Alpha Firearms Channel. Just go check it out, okay? Just a word to the wise. And um, if anyone... Like, we should... Like, again, it's one of those things that's just been kind of... For my, my side... Because I helped you do, to get it, mm. get it going. But from my side, we kind of got swamped by making TV shows in the last kind of 12 months. But um, it's one of those things that I definitely think has great potential. Yes, I mean, it's part. not a true crime thing. It's really just, you know, firearms reviews and silly little things about firearms. So uh, you won't find true crime stuff there. But if you're interested in firearms, and you know, for sure, definitely go listen. What, like, Saturday, it's Saturday night, you're kicking back. What's, what, what's, what are you streaming? What, what do you watch on TV, Jared? What oh, shows do you watch? Do you watch? Do you go home and watch true crime shows? Absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> I find it absolutely a punishment. Uh, not because there aren't brilliant crime shows out there. There are really nowadays some amazingly well-researched, well-put-together, well-produced you know, uh, programs, local and international. Um, but, you know, I just, you know, when you've worked with the stuff in reality, to go watch shows, it's like... Like I always say, if you're a lawyer, do you always go? Do you go home and watch law shows at home and sure. read law books? You know, even if it's nonfiction. So I don't. Um, every now and then I will because it's it's a big talking point of a particular show, and I feel like obliged because people are going to ask me at radio interviews. Do I have I have I seen that? What do I think of it? But in general, no. To be honest with you, what do I watch? So did you watch Dharma? I st I watched I think the first episode. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so what so do you watch then? What are you putting on? What are you putting on? I kind of will watch. I'm a big. I like sci-fi. So to be honest with you, I, I grew up in the age of Star Wars. I think I was six when the first Star Wars movie came out, and it sort of changed my world. Oh yeah. So uh, I kind of think I've watched all the available stuff that's about Star Wars that's on like the Disney Channel. Um, so good sci-fi. I mean, there's a lot of bad sci-fi. So good sci-fi. I love The Walking Dead. Okay. There you Ooh. go. Is it ominous? <laughs> <laughs> So that's what I really like that. Great promo. Um, there you go. Promo sort of for the walking. Good day. zombie uh, apocalypse type of series or movies. Again, there's a lot of trashy ones. Okay. But um, I always find that I think because of the mindset of people and how people behave. Okay, it's, I know it's not real yet, um, but it's interesting to see how the dynamics of people behave and who survives, who doesn't. Um, yeah. So I, I love a good zombie movie, actually. To be honest with you. Okay, so you can deal with some gore. Just it's got to be kind of outside of reality a bit yeah, yeah. which i kind of get um <laughs> so let's should we jump into our it's it's always interesting to find out new things about you that we don't know jared <laughs> um okay so let's dive into this week's case now um where this home where this where, where this week's case takes place is is home to the late lucky dube it was where he was from dj zintle soccer players helman mkalele and delhi mbata um it's a it's a town that is along the road down between uh, Joburg and Durban, um, famous for its coal mining and steel production. Um, I'm sure tons goes on there, but we're going to talk about um, something that happened 
um, you know, that's to do with murder. And uh, it is the town of Newcastle. So set the scene for us. Tell us a little bit about Newcastle and um, what goes on in Newcastle? You know, I've only ever been there, I think, once, and that was for this case. Um, so my, my view of it, literally my view, what I saw, was, was not exactly, I guess, the most flattering view of Newcastle. Sure. But I mean, surprisingly, it's like the third largest city in the KwaZulu-Natal province, which I was very, very surprised, but very industrial. So, um, you know, I guess 40 years ago, 50 years ago, it had maybe had a sort of the mining town charm, you know, the local sports club or wherever you go to on the weekends and socialize. Uh, it's a bit more rugged now uh, and probably not as in such a great condition. Yeah. So, and yeah, a bit, little bit off. You don't really drive through it you, unless you're going somewhere else. And it's not on the main route going to Durban, for example, if you're driving down from Johannesburg. So, yeah. um, you might stop off to check out some battlefield, maybe. Yeah, I would yeah. suppose that's you know, war era, you know, the Boer War against the British um, type of thing. Yeah. I see there's some stuff about it there. So, yeah, and I really just got to see the police station and the kind of area of the crime scenes, which is on the border of the town. And even the, tri the trial itself of this case when it eventually went to court was in Peter Maritzburg at the High Court. So. Now, we're back to what I'm, I always like to discuss, a good serial killer case, you know, a good yeah. you know, thoroughbred serial killer case, somebody out there committing crimes in a unique fashion. And there's lots of interesting kind of um, unique and interesting components in this case. Um, and we'll come to talking about linkage analyses again yeah. and how important they were in this case because that was quite a landmark um, yeah. Yeah. occurrence in this particular case. But now tell us what happened. Where, do we start where, where you got involved or do we start where this thing came onto the police's radar? Let's tell it as it unfolded, I okay. would suggest. Well, you always have a great way I to tell I kind of got into the towards the end anyway. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so basically this is one of those cases that it's, you know, probably nobody out of a handful of people who were involved even heard about it. I mean, I think if you Google it, you'll find a bit of media reporting uh, at the time. But most people have never heard about the Newcastle murder series. Ooh. Again, I think it was the first one in this area. So again, we just named it the Newcastle murder series, save ourselves some time. I just want to acknowledge that the investigating officer who took these over uh, was and then Detective Inspector Tinas Deploy from the Luke Newcastle Serious and Violent Crime Unit which again was a, a late iteration of the earlier murder and robbery units that used to exist sort of more in the apartheid um, days. Uh, and Tinas was a very experienced um, murder investigator, really great guy, dedicated, knew his stuff. Good guy to have a drink with, you know, good old cop. <laughs> you know, so if you go visit him, you definitely end up um, yeah, having a good time. I don't know that because I've not had the distinct <laughs> pleasure of getting a little bit tipsy with um, with with you and your cop buddies. You still haven't invited me, haven't invited me, but yeah. I'm available. Yeah, I think, thankfully I've stopped drinking because I don't think my liver could uh, tolerate anymore. I'll do that. I'll take up that responsibility <laughs> on behalf of on behalf yeah. of the podcast team when we do it. So in a nutshell, um, like I said, a case that never really a lot of people know about, but I, I think a fascinating case because it's a bit different to what we've many of the ones we perhaps described and, and you've seen the books and the podcasts, etc. Um, and it really took place over a period of a year. Uh, and you get this sort of exercise, we called it a trim park in those days, <clears throat> on the sort of border of Newcastle. Um, little exercise area, open park, anybody can kind of walk through it. People do take shortcuts, etc. And then we'll post a picture on some of our um, 
social media stuff that you can see the very the area where this sort of took place. Yeah, we'll post the aerial view where where the um, different scenes are noted, and where his residence is noted as well. Yeah, but the case dates back to the first incident was on Saturday the fourteenth of February two thousand four at about six o'clock in the evening. So it's summer, so it would still probably be light um, at that time for Valentine's Day. Uh, yeah, for fourteenth of February. And this couple had kind of gone to the park and decided to be romantic because, of course, it's, it's Valentine's Day. And what else do you do except have sex in a park? So basically, they're busy enjoying themselves. And the offender suddenly sneaks up um, and whacks the male on the head with a large rock. Um, of course, she gets a huge fright. She pushes her, the boyfriend off of her. And he basically grabs her, slaps her hits the male again with this huge rock and drags her by the foot to the nearby ditch about 10 meters away. Uh, he rapes her once and then afterwards tells her to get dressed and bugger off. So nothing really stolen uh, for that particular incident. And now again, I think we might probably be able to post one or two not too dramatic looking pictures. Um, yes. And you'll see next to the dead body, this rock was, this, we're not talking about a rock that you hold in one hand, you know, or a brick sized rock. We're talking about something that, you can lift up with two hands and it's going to be heavy, you know, a huge rock. So um, obviously a weapon of opportunity because you wouldn't <laughs> be walking around with a rock like that. Um, the guy, but basically the, the, the male victim died essentially, you know, instantaneously. Uh, and of course, she goes off to the police to report the incident. Um, and the case is opened, murder and, ro- and uh, a rape case at that particular point in time. Now, if you look at the, the media already, because I remember it's Newcastle is a relatively small town, even though it's the third largest in KZN province. And, you know, they report that, you know, 16-year-old girl was with her boyfriend and he was murdered. She was dragged to the nearby river, brutally raped. They were sharing an intimate moment on a Saturday night, um, crashing, brought, brought the rock crashing down on her on her boyfriend's head, left the young girl, and she ran to a nearby takeaways and, and informed the police um, emergency practitioners arrived at the scene, found him dead, serious head injuries. And obviously she was very, very traumatized as a result of this. And anyone for information, please come forward to, to the police. But it doesn't really go anywhere. You know, there's, you know, it doesn't seem like a cell phone was stolen, if I recall correctly. So some of the things that you might normally follow up on as great leads aren't there. So kind of like, you don't know who, where, how, um, there's no, clearly it wasn't a angry, you know, this person angry against that person, you know, a pre-targeted. It really just seemed like wrong place at the wrong time. It really does strike you though. How, how do you sneak up with that rock? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's quite like, I mean, it really is big and, um, it's quite an open area. Just the gumption it takes, I suppose, to just be able to do that. Um, what, what is pointed out in the uh, in that first initial crime scene photo? What is pointed out? Yeah, so what we've got L, uh, on the crime scene C photo, there. yeah, number, uh, marker number C, that's essentially where he raped her, the, the, oh, where the suspect where raised the male victim, yes, okay. got the rock, and of course you've got the person's body that's been pointed out. Okay, so that was incident number one in it. So little article in the paper, mm. um, there's a docket opened up, but it kind of goes, kind of slips by, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing perhaps relevant to mention is that he, you know, while he's raping her, she tries to scream and he pulls out an okapi knife. So for those of you that don't know what that is, it's a very common cheap knife with a wooden ha- knife with a wooden handle, a fairly long blade, maybe about 10 centimeters that you can buy at sort of a lot of these, you know, general dealer types of stores that a lot of people carry with them. 
um, and he threatens to stab her. It's it's quite a long gap then to October. Yeah, so nothing happens. Case doesn't get solved, and we jump forward. The 27th of October, this is about 11 o'clock at night, and uh, a man had parked his minibus taxi in South Africa, those little sort of, you know, 20-seater buses that we use as, as taxis, for those of you overseas. And again, couple engaged on a blanket, being intimate. And essentially why that's taking place... Sorry, It's very um, Zodiac. Yeah. Isn't it? Now, this is not very far from the previous incident. I would say, uh, just at the top of my head, 300 meters at the most um, from where that particular first incident took place. Uh, And this girl was with her boyfriend. Um, You know, as I said, they were having sex. uh, And essentially whack she just feels something sort of hit her also in the face and she sees a guy standing in front of her um with her, where she was standing with her legs sort of spread and pushes her she pushes the boyfriend off and she screams um please don't kill me please don't kill us uh, she tries to get dressed uh, he tells her don't get dressed and he grabs her by the hand then he asks her where's the firearm where's the firearm and they're like well i don't know anything about a firearm we don't have one um, he then starts to search the male, the boyfriend's trousers, because obviously he's basically just, you know, that, that whack to the head. If he wasn't dead very quickly, he was being totally unconscious from that whack to the head. And kind of he, the suspect then starts to search the boyfriend's trousers, again takes out a knife, puts it to the right-hand side of the neck and pulls it to the river and says, I'm going to have sex with you. Um, and essentially at knife point, he then ends up raping her. Then he drags her back to the taxi. She gets dressed. And he starts going through the actual, opens the door of the taxi, um, starts looking around. She gives him money from her bag. Obviously, he's, she's just trying to placate him. And he's then looking for various things. And then she suddenly notices that the, the inside of the taxi is on fire. And essentially what the guy had done is set the taxi on fire, which I, I don't really understand because none of the, the rape didn't take place in the taxi. You know, nothing really that would be from an evidential point of view that you would think, okay, I'm going to burn the taxi because my semen, my fingerprints, or whatever, whatever, whatever is really there. So he just seems to have started a little fire, almost like in between the two front seats, you know, by the gear lever there, which doesn't really go go very far. Um, and she then, you know, runs off and goes to report um, to someone else that she's been attacked. Uh, their two cell phones were missing, hers and her boyfriend's. Um, that obviously didn't lead to any, you know, linking of our suspect. Um, and that's pretty much it eh, for that particular incident. He's quite a big fella. The, the know, victim. Some, the victim. So yeah. it looks like he can kind of handle himself, which I think is kind of notable. So but, you know, when you're over- facing face down, <clears throat> I guess your, I, yeah, your, yeah, your yeah. thoughts are preoccupied. No, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you. <laughs> It just again, what I'm talking about more is the is the surprise factor. You Absolutely. can see that this guy really had no time because had he had the opportunity to kind of literally pull his pants up and and you'd think that he might be able to handle himself because yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. He's not a yeah. small guy. Um, and do you start thinking when you hear about the fire part, for example, where it's like, how yeah. do you interpret that, or how do you think about? that particular action yep. when you're interpreting his frame of mind or so so if i'd been called in uh, after these Sorry. two cases i'll be thinking a same circumstances same almost it's the same trim park both at night both men and women busy having sex um the rock which is very unusual to have this sort of people killed with the rock the victims are raped they're afterwards and left alive um Already, I'm thinking of a profiling point of view. These two cases, I mean, you'd have to be an idiot not to think, treat these as a series. Of course, if you get 
different DNA popping up uh, between the two cases, of course, that's perhaps a good argument to say it's not. But right now, as a profiler, I'm saying, I would be saying, look, you guys have got a serial murderer on your hands. The, the setting fire is interesting. I mean, obviously, the first case, there wasn't a vehicle. If there was, maybe he would have set it on fire. If we see it in two scenes, it's perhaps easier to say perhaps what the reason for the setting of the fire might be. More is it more psychological or more evidence de destruction? So I think you have to, you know, sometimes it's like Schrodinger's cat, entertain. It could be one or the other. We just don't know. Sure. So would that change anything? Well, maybe when I interview him, you know, I might put that into the conversation. So I was wondering, you know, was this about, you know, what was that about? Was it just did you get the urge to do it? Or mm -hmm. did it was it, you know, you trying to damage any evidence you think you might have left behind and sometimes you'll never know and I can hear I, I still don't really know it, do, it wasn't an effective fire but you can't say that he hadn't because the fire wasn't effective that he hadn't intended it to be effective you know what I mean was it purely just because he wanted to destroy something does he have this anger and he wants to just vent his anger did he does he get sexually aroused by a fire you know so there's lots of options you know we don't know at that this particular point and I can actually after the fact say I still don't know really yeah, why he yeah, did that yeah. No, just as a layperson, it's one of those things that you go, well, this would make me think that this guy is not doing, not everything that he does is not in the best service of what his intended outcome is. Yeah. So he is, it feels a bit random. It feels a bit like, oh, it, you know, he doesn't know if it's going to work or not work is what my point is. It just, and, anyway. And if you think about it, it's also he's spending extra time on the scene because not only after he's raped the victim, he goes back with her to the taxi and then rummages around. Now you kind of most time, I would think a logical thing is I've just killed someone. I've just finished raping them. That's, I guess, the main things of what you want to achieve. It's time to bugger off. Yeah. You know, because this is not a, a wildly secluded area. Um, yeah. And if you've, yeah, it's, it's just kind of, yeah, you do kind of wonder, is that more the psychological desire to do it possibly? But again, I, I don't know. Anyway, um, not to harp on that point. Um, but so that's two incidents. And you can see, you're right. I mean, in a town like Newcastle, I can imagine it's pretty easy to go. Mm. Chances are these two are related. And the media has picked that up because you'll see then literally the next day um, there's a newspaper report. They've got a picture of the body lying there naked with Bastion. That's just quite interesting. Yeah. I don't know how they got that close to be quite, able to take yeah, that picture. Is. We'll post that. Um, and they're already saying the headline is serial rapist murderer on the prowl. Well, again, media is picking these. I'm not saying the cops didn't think that also. But the media is definitely thinking it. Definitely, um, yeah. And again, we have to decide how we're going to manage that. Do we want to, no, you, it's not. You know, I know why sometimes police have this desire to automatically deny it could be. Um, and where we typically are, if you would have been said, look, yes, these cases are very similar. We're obviously following up on any forensic linkages to confirm. But in the meantime, we've anyway got experts involved who are knowledgeable about this issue. It's being dealt with by the serious and violent crime you know, the top-notch investigation unit in this area to at least make people feel like, okay, well, the, the cops, because if you say, no, it's not, no, it's not, no, it's not, but now, and by number four, you say yes, then the media is just going to say to you, well, so you guys have done nothing about it since then. Uh, when often you might have been, firstly, um, and it's not to mean that just because you didn't look at it as a serial, you weren't investigating it, but you start to look like idiots if by the fourth one you go, okay, guys, it is. It's like, oh, you know, Really, now you're coming to the party is how the public tends to view it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but like I said, spot on media, um, very interesting. Again, we've got the massive rock. I mean, it's a huge rock. <laughs> this guy is not taking little rocks. I mean, think about it. You could have taken a brick-sized rock, and after two or three blows, you probably would have had the same thing. In fact, this size rock is actually very awkward. 
if you start, if the victim starts to move around, it's not like you can grab him with one hand and smash him on the head with a brick. It's really, you're using two hands to wield this thing, it's, and it's slow. No, this is the point. You've got kind of one shot at it with this yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. exactly. If you don't, if, that's the point. If, you, if he doesn't do what he needs, if he can't get close enough with this thing to be able to do it, the, hit, to, to, kill, you know, to kill the man with his first blow, that guy's going to get up and then... And if the, and if the girlfriend sees this yeah. and he just sort of shifts a bit, you know, they rock wax him on the shoulder. Exactly. Great, that's going to really break something, but he's... You know, they'd still be not. You've lost see your more chance. Of a struggle at Absolutely, least. you know. Um, it does make you. Do you assume that this guy's? He must be a reasonably big guy. You'd think that. Um, you would think that he's. You know, but again, I've also I've also learned from people say, oh, there's no way somebody could have committed crime A by themselves. Uh, very often, it is by themselves, or you have to be big to do. I'm always hesitant because, you know, when. People Gerard can knows. do things. Gerard knows. Um, if you the, need to, if the, you need to pick up a body, you can. So yeah, so that's the case number two. The, the media is calling it, and we jump forward. So that was basically what did, what did we say. The time span was February, and this was now October. And now we find October twenty seventh actually was case number two. We jump to case number three, which is uh, basically a month later. Yeah, just under a month later. November. So on the one end, you can say right picking up pace. You have one gap, next one, and the next one follows quite quickly. Again, that's not uncommon for your serials that once they feel that com- confidence to start to pick up the pace and, you know, they now are really getting into what they're doing. So this is 26th of November, same year, 2004. <clears throat> but this is now, in the early hours, the body of an adult black, fee- black male sorry, is found along a footpath. A little bit, if you, if, you've, we've show, if you looked at the picture that we're going to put with the aerial map, this would be the, pic- the case that's on the top right-hand corner of the aerial map. Um, an adult black male found lying along a footpath wearing only his underwear and a shirt um, and is one shoe nearby. So what's missing is a pair of pants and a shoe uh, are missing. And nearby his body, one meter away, is a bloodied rock. Now what's different about this one a little bit is that no female came forward. Now that doesn't mean there wasn't a female, but she might be too scared to come forward for whatever reasons. you know, that she just uh, doesn't want yeah. to sort of be involved in this. And the rock itself was much smaller. It is actually more of a rock that could be a bit easier. It's about half the size of the other other rocks. You know, something that's easier to wield. Maybe the guy wasn't with someone else. So he had to use a smaller rock to, you know, maybe one hand to grab the guy from behind and hit him. I don't, I don't know. We're all speculating. So what's interesting is that as far as I recall, and I'm actually looking at the judgment now, this, this guy who was found by himself, as opposed to the first two cases where the ladies were present, was never identified. So we don't know who he is. And we, as I said, we don't know if there was a woman. Might or might not have been. She might just have not come forward for whatever reasons. Um, but again, although, you know, it's we don't have a woman there, again, we still look at it as a sexual murder scene because the, the guy's naked from the waist down. Again, could he be naked because he was busy with someone else? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the previous guy next to the taxi, if you can see, his, literally his pants were around his ankles and his underpants are sort of still on his butt with, you know, 
the important parts sticking out so that you could have sex. So again, it's a sexualized crime scene, but nobody comes forward. We don't know who this guy is. And so brutal. Yeah, I mean, if you look at this, we're not going to post this picture, but no. he's literally been whacked in the front of the skull. That There's a hole between his eyes, literally. Um, it's a, it, Yeah, I mean, this guy got it really badly. Yeah. But again, yeah. media is talking about, you know, uh, rock-wielding, rock-wielding serial killer struck again. The body of a victim was discovered Friday morning, a footpath. Uh, seems like he was killed around midnight. I don't know how they know that, um, etc., um, but but no really noteworthy forensic evidence yet. Yeah, yeah, nothing. I literally, I don't even know from the first two ladies who were raped. There's no mention in the judgment, and I don't recall of any DNA. So did he not ejaculate in them? Because they all would have been taken for medical exa- medical legal examination, or had he used a condom? We don't know. But there was no DNA from the first two rape cases. And this is considered to be a um, a series at this stage. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I wasn't involved at that point. The media's calling it. The police should definitely have been calling it. Even if they'd said, look, I don't know about this third one, maybe, maybe not. But the first two, from a modus operandi, signature point of view, absolutely. Well, you know, in the article, they do say, should a woman have fled the scene and failed to report the incident to contact police? Yeah. So it suggests that the police are obviously thinking of it, it as. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, and then we go on to the fourth incident. Yeah, so that was 26, 27 November of 2004. We jumped to the 7th of January 2005. So again, um, just over a month in this case. So we're still almost now on this month pattern uh, after the very first one in the gap. So after three incidents, we seem to have quite opportunistic crimes. We then jump about five or six weeks f- uh, into the future to the 7th of January 2005, Jared. Absolutely. So, yeah, a bit of a December holiday our suspect might have had. <clears throat> so this is, a yeah. bit, again, um, at this fourth incident is kind of like the third incident. We have uh, someone who's walking in the early hours of the morning, and he comes across uh, the body of an adult Indian male. Um, and this is very close to the taxi scene. Um, if you look at the sort of the map that we just spoke of, in other words, very close to scene number two. And they find this guy lying there, head bashed in. He's still alive at that point in time. And he unfortunately passes away later. But again, we can show a picture of the rock. The rock is lying. And he was literally lying on the, like, next to the side of the road. Uh, the rock is actually on the road when you see it. And a smaller rock, so kind of, if anything, we're going from two big rocks down to two smaller rocks. Again, could that mean that he was operating, attacking a person walking, you know, in the path? Which means he can't walk around behind him with a huge rock. He has to use a smaller one that's a bit more manageable. But um, the guy had actually left his sister's house the night before, um, I think at about nine o'clock in the, in the evening. He'd gone to visit her and her and her husband started having an argument. He's like, well, I'm out of here. I'm not interested in listening to your argument. And he leaves with a tog bag. And as I said, he's found in the early hours in the morning um, along the side of the road, dies in hospital, sadly. Uh, a bloodied rock is about eight meters away from where his body is found. His shoe is missing. Interesting. And... Um, we have a large roll of money lying next to his head. So I guess, I suppose you could argue robbery is perhaps not his main motive or the suspect missed that roll of money that was lying next to the body. Yeah, like I say, I think what I was trying to get at earlier, he just seems like very atypical in that there's not a lot to, you know, there's consistency in what he's doing, Mm. but then surrounded by kind of some quite random acts. Yeah, so it's like the victims, you know, as we discussed in this series, the victims in South Africa typically lured with a job offer. There's a con story of some sort to mm-hmm. get that victim to accompany them. That's usually the offer of employment. Here we're not having that. 
So he has the urge to go out and do what he wants to do. He just has to find the victim in that little company's operation in his spider web zone, if you want to call yeah. it that. So planning from his side, but the victim's web unfortunately happens to land in the spider web. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what's important here, I think, to talk about as well is the fact that with the first two cases, you could you could draw the line that, okay, this guy was wanting to rape the girlfriend, so he was getting rid of the guys quickly and then mm. kind of satisfying his sexual urges on the on the ladies. And yeah. that was... But now after two incidents where there's no clear proof that there was a woman yeah. on the scene, it's do you start to go, well, is this anger towards yeah. males or... You know, was, the, was the rape of the woman just the opportunistic yeah. part? And his real main anger is... is towards men for some reason yeah. we know as i said the fourth guy the, the indian male was identified he was walking home I, I guess he could have you know hooked up with a chick on the way home i don't know and and but it doesn't seem like it in terms of where the body was found uh etc so again is it is his main thing i just want to kill people but if there's a woman available hey i'm not going to give up that opportunity that's could be one of the things that's and, kind of base and simple as that yeah. yeah so again you know no female comes forward um and that's now January. Now, I guess, so we've got four cases all happening in the similar area. Mm-hmm. The police have put into plan a foolproof way to catch this guy. They've set the trap, and that's how they get him. Yeah. Is that, is that the answer? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> so Tinas, uh, Inspector Tinas Deploy that I mentioned earlier, he only took over this case in December of 2004. So, again, I know... If we had been aware of this case earlier, we would have insisted much earlier after the second one that is, that, is, that that goes to the Serious and Violent Crime Unit because it's a very high-profile case that we were getting involved. So we didn't know about this as the IPU at that point in time. So Tinas takes over in December. I think I suppose you could perhaps say, is it only then that they really took it seriously as a serials? Because, you know... He's the, the good cop in the area, I gather. Yeah, so, you know, the, again, as I said, the Serious and Violent Crime Unit it was the specialized guys. Those were the people you want dealing with any high-profile yeah. complex murders or any case. Um, and, you know, he's only given this case in December after, you know, we've got now the three victims that have happened. Um, so a little bit of speculation there as to kind of where the cops are at as, yeah. as far as prioritizing this is concerned. But now we're comfortable it's prioritized. And you, is this where you get involved? No. No. Okay. I only get involved after the guy's caught. Oh, I see. So okay. again, I, I'm trying to think back to whether we even had known. Because if we'd known about it, we would have stuck our noses in as soon as possible. Yeah. You either would have heard about it and then gotten involved. Yeah. Or the onus, but the, really the onus is on the detective whether or not he feels that your assistance is necessary. Yeah. In this case, it seems that... The, the case came to a conclusion pretty quickly because of the suspects. Uh, yeah, because yeah. It, it was his own fault. He got yeah. himself caught, basically. Yeah. So, again, I mean, this sometimes happens. And I mean, um, hey, we'll take, a, we'll take, you know, a suspect being identified no matter where it comes from. So really what happened um, is that on the 8th of March, uh, a man, a 68-year-old man, Mr. Junior Satole, um, he basically is living in an informal settlement around Newcastle. His job was collecting scrap metal that he does sort of sells on the side to a scrap dealer. And he said that he'd only ever seen the accused person twice before in his life. Um, and the one time was on the Wednesday morning um, before the arrest, uh, which we know took place on the 8th of March. He's walking along the road, doing minding his old business, and he sits down to have something to drink. And... 
the suspect appears. Well, he doesn't know who it is, but it's our suspect. And asks Mr. Stoller, can I have, you know, do you have a light for my cigarette? And they start to chat and he gives him some of his drink and they chitty chatting. What do you do? What do you do? <laughs> so the suspect says to him, well, I'm not employed, but um, I do my own work here in the park. And he says, what, Mr. Stoller says, well, what is your work here in the park? He says, well, I commit robberies. And that I, you know, I watch for people who come to the park and when they're engaged in sex near the river, I pick up a stone and hit the man on the head to get the money and rape the woman. So you can imagine Mr. Sertola's going, oh, well, that's an interesting occupation. Um, and he, Mr. Sertola said he'd heard rumors that there had been killing of people around the park. And he thought, my God, this is probably that guy. So he then goes off to look for a friend. And they kind of part their ways. And he then goes to find a friend of his who has a cell phone um, and also asks this guy, come help me find this guy again. So it's now on the 8th of March that they're walking in this sort of area and they see um, the suspect hanging around. And Satola's buddy then phones the cops. Cops arrive and, and they say, that dude, I think, he told me he kills people in the park. And he gets arrested. So, you know, again, like I said, we'll take our luck where it comes from. But this case wasn't solved by police work. Yes, there's still a massive responsibility on the police to put together the case to beyond a reasonable doubt get the guy convicted at trial. Mm. Um, uh, so, yeah, and as I said, this is um, how this case actually then got solved is the suspect told someone, and this guy did his good good sort of Samaritan, good citizen re- responsibilities and then contacted the police. It really underlines the fact that, um, you know, the, the perception that serial killers are all the Hannibal Lecter types, um, yeah. you know, really is misplaced, isn't it? Uh, it is indeed. Or, yeah, or the alcohol was flowing and the mouth starts to flow. I don't know. Because I think they were drinking mechewu, which is a traditional beer, <laughs> traditional beer. Maybe that played a role. I have no doubt. Yeah, so we've got the confession to a member of the public, which would be admissible in court. Ironically, if he'd said the same thing to a cop, that would not have been admissible at that stage. You'd have to then go do a proper formal written confession. So that's one of the evidential pieces. They track down the two ladies. The one lady uh, points the suspect out in what we call an identity parade or a lineup, if you use sort of American terminology. The other lady points him out on photographs that have been presented to her, about seven or eight photographs, um, and she points out the, the suspect. So we've got the two pointing out via photo parade or, or a lineup parade, if you want to call it that. He is quite distinctive looking, isn't he? Yeah, he's a little bit um, like bugger, eh? He's got, the, that's this with a scar under his eye. Um, yeah. He, I mean, he's quite a caricature with, you know, the scar especially, you know? Um, he's an ugly bugger, eh? He looks like a serial killer. Well, I wouldn't say that. I would just say that the scar, but, you know, I can imagine that he's quite a, he was quite a both. He came off as quite an ominous figure in the yeah. moment. Obviously, the I think you'd violence that aside, face. but yeah. yeah. All right. So the police then, um, Altinus deploy, they go to his place where he's staying. Uh, he then take, well, he actually takes them to the little place. And he's, if you look at that aerial photograph, you'll see there's a little red block. Literally that in the middle of his area of his crime scenes is where he lived over the river. So he could literally pretty much see these scenes be there in two or three minutes and then be back into his little place. And it was really just a little tent in the grass um, where he kind of would would live. And there was rotting food there, uh, items of women's clothing, although none of these ladies say that he took their clothing. He had items of clothing. Now, whether he just stole this off washing lines or from other victims that didn't come forward, who maybe he just, and I say just in inverted commas, that he just raped, we obviously don't know 
exactly what could have been the uh, the reason. Yeah, but I mean, you've got to assume that there, yeah. there's potentially somebody attached to that stuff yeah. that has, has yeah. not had a good experience with him. Yeah. Um, and sometimes when we do arrest a guy, we put his photo in the newspaper, we make mention that the guy who's been doing this in this area has been arrested. We do often get victims come forward, but sure. doesn't seem in this particular case um, it was the case. He's also now, of course, telling the police, I don't know Mr. Satorle. I've never told him anything. He's trying to frame me. Um, because there was a reward out uh, for a suspect, uh, etc. You know, it does make you think about, you know, looking at the, the geography of where he stayed in relation to the crimes. It does make you kind of think about, you know, canvassing the area. I mean, yep. uh, it doesn't see, doesn't feel like there was a, uh, you know, a big effort to have foot patrols in the area just scouring for evidence or speaking yeah. to any potential witnesses in the immediate vicinity. So what we would have definitely done if we'd been involved, we would have said, look, we know these guys often live in and around the area. Um, you know, you would have perhaps got more description from the victims that, you know, did he, did he come across as someone who's well-dressed or did he come across as someone who's sleeping in the bushes? Uh, and then said, right, well, let's do this, you know, search of the area, if anything, for other bodies. Um, because we know that these guys come back. Think of Corey Case that we discussed uh, a few times. Exactly. These geographical patterns are not weird and unusual. We know that they exist from in South Africa and in other parts of the world. And one of the reasons why they clump their scenes together is because they stay nearby. So definitely, I think if you'd had serial trained and Tinnis later did come on our serial um, serial murder course, but when he did this, he wouldn't have known these facts and features. Yeah. So, yes, you know, we would have said, let's search the area, if anything, for exhibits that, you know, that belong to the victims, maybe. Um, more bodies that hadn't been found. Uh, and possibly a suspect, if it looks like a homeless person, possibly he lives there and that we could have picked him up or at least where he stayed. Or at least police would have had, you know, would have interviewed him and the opportunity to just kind of get a sense of the guy. Um, you know, the geography, not to understate the geography part, I mean, the technology these days is able to give police likely areas that a potential perpetrator would be living in, isn't it? Yeah. So it's not just about, okay, he probably, he may live somewhere within your, within the kill zone here. They just draw a big mm. circle around it. The actual statistic of the data analysis they do these days really kind of hones in on quite specific locales where the person could be, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And you'd think it would be that technology today applied to this case mm. then would really have um, uh, shown, you know, given the police some, some clear paths to follow. Okay, so it's pretty clear. As, so, <laughs> you know, the, let, let's let's introduce him. His yeah. name is Temba Anton Sukude. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, he was born on the 16th of May, 1974. So he would have been 29 at the time of the first known murder. I always like to phrase it that way, which fits in exactly with our serial murder research that we did a couple of years ago that was published in the Journal of Investigative Psychology and Offender Profiling. Um, where typically the average age of these of a South African serial murder is 29 at the first murder. Mm -hmm. He has a grade five level education, which would be what, grade five? 
standard, standard three, three in the old terminology in South Africa, but grade five in the more sort of overseas terminology. So very low. He didn't finish primary school. Again, quite consistent with our South African serial murderers. A Zulu speaker, but, you know, he lived in Natal, so that's nothing particularly surprising. Um, and as I said, was doing not much to keep himself uh, going in life. And that's really, what we, we do know that he had quite a number of convictions up until about, I think, 1990. I mean, the judge actually said later on, and I quote, you have an impressive list of previous convictions going back to 1990. And although most of these are more than 10 years old, what they do indicate is you have no respect for the law. Now, I can't recall. Now, she doesn't mention here what those previous convictions were. And I, unfortunately, off the top of my head, don't know and can't recall myself. But he has... A, you know, up to 1990, quite a history. And I'd love to know whether they were sexual offenses, because that, again, would color in the picture of where, you know, his, his full violent crime history, or were they sort of property-related crimes? And, and I unfortunately don't know. So that's what we know about old Mr. Sekude. All right, so what then is going to happen to Mr. Sekude next? Mr. Sekude is the guy. There seems to be quite a lot of evidence. That, well, there seems to be quite a lot pointing at him. Mm. Let's sift out what happens at court and what yeah. is how the evidence is presented because this is where we now come to the point that we that I raised a bit earlier in that 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 thing which we've spoken spoken about on the podcast a number of times and is you know a tool that you use on a daily basis the linkage analysis here played a real important factor and yeah. this is one of the earlier cases in South Africa where in fact is it one of the first that really mm. relied quite heavily yeah. on the linkage analysis to convict this guy? Yeah. So what do we have going up to the trial? We've only got the confession to a member of the public where he told Mr. Satoli and that led to his arrest. Uh, we have the two surviving rape victims, one who identified him at a physical lineup and the other one on the photo lineup. And that's it. And then, of course, the prosecutor, it was uh, Advocate Nell from the Peter Maritzburg Director of Public Prosecutions, in other words, the High Court Prosecutors, who said, look, um, this is, I said, look, this is what we can do for you. And said, that's exactly what I need because, you know, I've only got this evidence. We know it's him, but this is all we've got. We didn't find the cell phones. There's no DNA evidence, uh, etc. So he asked me to compile. So this, yes, as far as I know, this is the first time we'd ever had a report in the court where the title of the report was linkage analysis. So I know we spoke about the Quarry case um, as, again, where it was used. So that wasn't per se the first one, but the difference here is that, that the Quarry case was the first one where the judge spent length, uh, at length in the judgment speaking about the use of the linkage analysis evidence, how it played a role, the legal principles under which this would be admissible in court. So that's, the, that's a great one to use at um, future cases because we can say to the court, here's great case law and how the, the previous judge used it. But Quarry had a lot of physical evidence. Yeah. And because of a, there were a lot of cases. Yeah, I think half the cases there was something like a cell phone or we had a pointing out and confession, something physical or DNA. So ultimately when the judge gave her judgment she just mentioned that i testified literally like half a paragraph labaskakni highly experienced testified and that's it she didn't say i used this evidence i found it persuasive it was meaningful to me it helped nothing so sadly it's not a great judgment from the point of view of this is how this evidence you know helped me so you know convict this guy we can use that written judgment for future cases that's why quarry was great because it did what this case didn't um, and, but we do know, ultimately, that the judge convicted him on all, all counts, uh, Judge Niles Duner, very good judge. 
but she didn't say that this helped, but she did refer to him as a serial. So it d- does seem like it played a role, but it's not clear and evident from the actual judgment. Sure. So, so at the trial, we had the two ladies testify. Most of the evidence wasn't contested because the, the defense counsel was saying, well, we don't dispute that you know, women were raped, men were murdered. It just wasn't my client. So a lot of the evidence was really not disputed. Even my evidence, if I recall correctly, uh, I stood up there. And of course, in a linkage analysis, I'm never saying it's Temba Anton Sakude who's the guy. I, I can't link him to the crime. How can I say it's him? I wasn't there. I'm just saying whoever it was, it was the same person who committed these four various offenses. So from the from the defense counsel's point of view is, well, we don't care if Lobeskachny says this was the same guy because we're saying it's not my client at all. So what do we care whether it's one or four people or three people who committed these various crimes? So a bit of frustrating. I always like a good cross-examination, but often we don't get it. Um, and in this case, there was no, if I recall correctly, there was no cross-examination for me. So, so while the judge never sent too much about my evidence, if you look at what she did say in the judgment, she's really relying on the similarity amongst the cases. Mm-hmm. You know, she says, um, you know, the two attacks appear, all the attacks are at night, um, a, a small radius where the incidences occurred, um, having regard to all these factors, and in particular the unusual nature of the weapon which caused the victim's death, i.e. the rock, we find an irresistible inference that it is the same person, namely the accused, who was responsible for sort of these counts seven and eight, which was the sort of the two males by themselves. So um, he was found guilty on all charges leveled against him. So remember, he wasn't just charged for the murders. It was four times murder, two times rape. I think the malicious damage to property for setting the vehicle on fire, the stolen, the stealing of the two cell phones, which would be robbery, etc. So, um, and found found him guilty. And this would be about April, 25th of April, uh, 2006. Any behaviors in court? Any Anything noteworthy about him as a person? And did you get the chance to speak to him? So, yeah, actually, sorry, I did. I forgot to mention that I did manage to interview him not too long after his arrest. Um, you know, again, he's denying everything, so it wasn't a, a lovely interview where I'm getting insight into the mind of the offender. <clears throat> I'm trying to think, this would have been quite soon after his arrest, um, probably within a week or so, if I recall correctly. Um, and I, tr- I go down, actually, at a student from Canada who's now lecturing in, 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 in Canada. Um, she came out to, and she was with me for two weeks, so she came down with me when we went to go and interview him. But again, he wasn't saying much. I did interview one of the ladies who had been raped also as part of my sort of uh, process of going down there. Yeah, I said he's denying everything, says it's not him. So it wasn't a, a great, wonderfully insightful interview, except to look at someone how, as, and see how they lie. Um, yeah. yeah. Which in your profession, is a, that's, a, that's a, a, an additional bit of experience and knowledge that is of great value. I Absolutely. Guess. Every time you get to be in front of someone who's a suspect, it's, it's a learning opportunity, even if they totally deny it or totally come up with nonsense stories. That's an opportunity of learning. And you had this Canadian at the time, a student with you. Did she, did she sit in on the interview? Yeah, so she didn't ask questions, but she was present um, and got that opportunity to... Isn't that amazing? Isn't that yeah, amazing? I mean, it's her name is Shannon Vetter and Dr. Vetter. And um, she'd been doing her master's in investigative psychology in, in um, Liverpool with David Cantor, Professor David Cantor. 
Um, and as I said, this is part of a practical. She came out and spent two weeks hanging around with me, and we did some very interesting stuff. So, so let's get her on the podcast and have a chat to her. Hey. And now she's back in Canada lecturing in this, these types of topics. She can tell us a little bit about kind of... It's, it would be interesting to hear from somebody who's in the field in Canada, who's had the experience in South Africa, you know, albeit, you know, fairly limited, but just to get a sense of, you know, the comparison there from her perspective as well, you know? Um, so, so what about like a sentence? What did the judge have to say yeah. about this guy? So in the finding closing remarks before she pronounced him guilty on everything, um, she, or gave the sentence, she said, and I quote, you have shown by the nature of these crimes that you have no respect whatsoever for human life. You are a menace to society and a serial killer, and I conclude that the prospects of, for your rehabilitation are zero. In my view, you should be taken out of circulation permanently, and the Department of Correctional Services must kindly comply when I say taken out of society permanently. She then went on to give him uh, a life sentence for one, two, three, four, five uh, of the counts. So five life sentences. Then uh, a 10-year sentence and uh, two times 15 years. That'll probably be for the robbery. Um, so yeah, so in the end, I mean, it, well, basically the five life sentences really kind of take over everything because anything else just it starts at the same time as the life sentence and will expire long before we get to the end of his life. So yeah, so basically the five, it's for the four murders and the one rape of a minor for the, because the young girl was, one of the girls was 16, so that's automatic life sentence. 10 years for the rape of the adult female and two times 15 years for the robbery with aggravating circumstances and 12 months for setting the taxi on fire. Okay, um, and we won't mention, we won't talk about, you know, the reality of when it comes to parole and all that kind of stuff. We've spoken about that ad nauseum in previous episodes, but yeah. he will be up for parole at some point as well. Well, quite frankly, he was quite young, I'd be, back you know. then, I think it was 20 years were you before your opportunity to be heard for parole hearings. Okay. Uh, so, so this was, uh, he was sentenced in 2006. So 2026, Unless he's benefited from some, I don't think he would have benefited from some of the earlier constitutional judgments which some, some life sentence people benefit from. So hopefully 2026 will be the first time he will have an opportunity to be heard for parole. And I'm hoping that the, the court would, well, the correctional services would have got a copy of this judgment and will mm. kind of be saying, look, five life sentences, four murders and a rape of minor. We don't want this guy back and we should listen to what the judge says. So, but you never know. Never put it beyond correctional services to do something wacky. Fingers crossed. Um, it would be nice if we were able to just, if we had yet opened up a nice line of dialogue with someone where we could go, can you just tell us what's going on with this guy yeah. right now at their correctional service? It's not that easy with that particular organization. No, and I don't even know which prison he might be in right now, yeah. to be honest with you. Yeah. We'll crack it one of these days, Jared. We will. And um, the sun is shining. Exactly. We started the podcast with the ominous rain and sound with the wonderful, moody, atmospheric vibe going on in the background. And as you said, the sun would come out and be shining by the end of it. Um, what are you left with with this case? Uh, you know, another good, a, a typical, pretty, pretty, a fairly typical South African serial in that its bodies found out in the bush. But again, a little bit different, a bit more like the Zodiac kind of yeah. killer couples. What leaves me, what's left with me with regards to this case, what I'm left with is the. it's frustrating not to know what his motivations are, even at a basic level. Was he angry with guys mm. or was he trying to satisfy some sexual desire? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that's always a cherry on the top if you can, even if just from their perspective, what do they think, what's their motive for doing it? Um, yeah, it's, it seems it's, it's, a, it's a need that we have as people to mm-hmm. want to understand why, isn't it? And in cases like this where it's so hard to get to the why, mm-hmm. and probably no one will ever get to the why, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it is a strange frustration that it leaves you with because you just want to mm-hmm. kind of understand and place these people in a safe box that you're able to kind of categorize them in your own psyche so that you can feel a little bit safer at night. Yeah. When our, body doesn't, our minds don't mm-hmm. like these open-ended... Yeah. All right. Um, Thanks, Gerard. Uh, We'll be back again next week. Thank you for listening as always. Please do subscribe to our page on YouTube at, um, you can just search Profiler Africa. We're available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Search Profiler. And you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Profiler Africa and join our Facebook group. We're going to be doing an episode on pathology next week which will be interesting oh, yeah. who are we going to be speaking to Joe? yeah so dr hestel like estelle with an h in front of it von staden who is one of the senior forensic pathologists at the johannesburg forensic pathology services based in bromfontein uh, in johannesburg one of the busiest mortuaries in the country she's been doing this for many many years um, i got to know when i was obviously still in the police she now is um part-time there so she still will cut bodies twice a week but she then also does other things that forensic pathologists do, sometimes consulting on, on cases privately, sometimes for the defense, helping understand wounds to bodies, etc. Sometimes doing private autopsies when the family requests one just because they want one. Uh, and also uh, things like signing off before people get uh, cremated, which I didn't know that you have to have a forensic pathologist sign that off. Because, of course, once you burn a body, if there was something dodgy, uh, it's too late to do anything about it. What I'm curious about is I've actually got a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine. His um, his wife uh, is a is a doctor, and she wants to. She she's kind of trying to specialize in pathology, and there are it's 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 another scenario where there are a certain amount of of um, roles jobs available in Gauteng I'm mm. talking about now there's certain there's a certain quota that is supposed to be required of pathologists and apparently there are only a couple of pathologists working talking about pathologists that are kind of employed by the police am I right <coughs> Um, I'm not exactly sure where pathologists fit into this. We'll f- figure all this out yeah, next week. Yeah, because you get forensic pathology and you get normal pathology. Because yeah. it seems like that the, the, it's potentially this is an area where which is understaffed a bit at the moment as well, potentially. There's also a new pathology lab being opened or being built here, isn't there? So it would be interesting to talk a little bit about that and find out what's going on with that facility. Because I understand it was supposed to have been opened already, but now it's been put back by a year or two. And it looks like it will open in the next year or two. We're also going to do an episode on um, entomology. Mm. Um, we've got the, Lawrence Hill has agreed to talk to us about bugs for justice. Um, I am really want to do an episode with um, on, on the Sizzlers Massacre which is a great case, and we've got somebody really interesting um, who uh, to speak to on that case. Um, and then also we want to talk, do an episode on LGBTQ plus um, related crimes as well. So we've got some nice episodes coming up, and we'll 
going to do our very best to make sure that there's a new episode for every week um, over the December holidays. Um, if we miss a week, okay, we apologize in advance, but we shouldn't. And we will let you know on social media um, if we're going to skip a week when the next, when you can look out for the next available episode. But hopefully we'll, we'll get enough episodes done that we'll have uh, consistent episodes every week to get to listen to on the beach when you're um, being a volley down in Durban or if you're just kind of being annoyed by volleys down in Durban or if you're in the the Republic of Cape Town or that part of the world for the holidays um, we'll bring you we'll, we've got some nice episodes lined up to keep you entertained um, or annoyed or frustrated or whatever you uh, want to feel like while you have a listen thank you Gerard great chatting to you great. and uh, we will talk uh, pathology next which I'm really looking forward to and um, have a great week cheers you too thanks listeners thank you as always thank you and uh, rest easy everybody <laughs> <laughs>